So my mom and dad are here, and I'm glad, because I always like somebody who can actually bear witness to a story I'm going to tell. Um, and my mom is here today. She just finished her radiation on Friday, so we are so... In a long few months. Um, so when I was in seventh grade, um, we lived in Houma, Louisiana, way down south, like south of New Orleans. That's a place. And let's just say that when I was in seventh grade... Um, it wasn't my best year. Do you know what I'm saying? It was, um, it was not a good time for me. I was awkward. Um, extremely, incredibly dorky. Um, just those were among my, my, thank you for laughing at that because it's the truest thing. I wish I had a picture. Um, and so on the last day of seventh grade, and my mom was here with me, so this is the truth. It's only slightly embellished. Um, on the last day of seventh grade, my mom and my friend's moms decided to take me and my fellow girlfriends to Shoney's. Mom, was it Shoney's? For breakfast before the last day of school. Well, this felt very like an awesome, big, grown-up thing to do. So me and my girlfriends are sitting at a table, and the moms sat at another table because we were certainly obnoxious. And um, so I, I was probably easily the dorkiest girl at the table. I mean, that's just, that's just a fact, okay? And so we had these good friends. They're my mom and dad's best friends. And they had this son, okay? And he was a junior that year, maybe a senior. His name was Ron Coyle. And let me just tell you something. Ron Coyle was fine, okay? <laughs> I mean, he's no Brandon Hammaker, but I'm just saying. Okay? So we'd been friends with them for years. I was just the pesky little daughter of his parents or whatever. He happened to be at Shoney's that morning. And so, God, this is like the best story of my life. Um, so I'm with my friends around this table, and Ron Coyle walks up to our table. Well, you could have heard a pin drop, because what's he doing at our table? We're a bunch of seventh grade girls. And he's fine. So they're all looking at him, and he does a little intro with us. Hey, ladies. Well, for, we're all paralyzed. Everyone's frozen. There's no, we didn't, we would have liked to have flirted or engaged, but we didn't really have that skill set. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so once he has, like, said a few opening lines, and he has the attention of the whole table, hand to the heavens, he leans down behind me wraps his arms around me and kisses me in front of all my friends. Mic drop. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was easily the greatest moment of my life. Um, and so he, he made a zero into a hero around the table that day. I'll never forget about it. I'm 40 years old and I'm still talking about it, okay? <laughs> I was thinking about this week, that this week, as I was studying Matthew 8, because... If you've been with us at all, we've been studying for like a hundred years, the Sermon on the Mount. And the guys have just done this really brilliant job the last few weeks of unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as we know, this is the very, very, very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And so, we know that he has just delivered this sort of epic sermon. He has everybody's attention, right? He's come to the table of the seventh grade girls, and he has got everybody looking at him. He's got everybody listening to him. It's not super clear in scripture where it was, but historically, most people agree that Jesus was around Mount Aramos, which is sort of on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, about a mile or two from Capernaum, which is where we see him go next here in a minute. And so, 
After saying all these words that have never been heard, that have never been said, these ideas that have never been unpacked, and everybody is like on pins and needles, what is this guy going to do now, right? What's next? What, after we've just heard this amazing teaching, what's the first thing he's going to do? Who's he going to? Where's he going to go next? We're paying attention to him now. I mean, if Jesus was just something of a rising star before the Sermon on the Mount, he's got everybody's attention now. So I was just telling a friend this week, I said, you know what is one thing that I love about Jesus? And she was like, like his compassion. I'm like, no, it's that he's strategic. And she's like, that's a weird thing to say. Um, but he was, he's so strategic. And so absolutely intentionally and on purpose, this is where we find ourselves. If you got your Bibles, we're in Matthew 8. I'm going to pick up right where we left off last week. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. So, I mean, we have just, you know, pages and pages of this astonishing teaching. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. In verse 1. So, when he came down from the mountain side, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cured of leprosy. It's not an accident that Jesus came down off that mountain and went straight to a zero. That was absolutely on purpose. Um, If you know anything about leprosy in a first century context, it was universally believed that leprosy was linked to character defect. It was indicative of your sin, um, of your own failures. And so, in fact, scripturally, among all the unclean conditions of men at the time, leprosy was the worst. Um, Some of the other uncleannesses that separated a person... um, through a series of rituals, they could, they could become made clean. But he, they would be rendered clean, unclean for a day or a week or even a month. But in the case of leprosy, in most cases, it's forever. It is an uncleanness for the rest of your life. So this miracle right here that we're talking about first, it's the first recorded healing miracle in Matthew. And this is the only cure of leprosy recorded by all three of the the first evangelists in the Gospels. And so we're pretty sure this is the first of its kind, this particular type of healing, which is worth noting. This is a really, really profound moment, what we're reading right now. It's a really enormous demonstration of Jesus's power, and it's an enormous demonstration of that leper's faith. Um, Remember that at the time, clear theological understanding and knowledge of the person of Christ was not even really possessed yet by those who were closest to Jesus. He's still something of a mystery at this point in his ministry. And so this level of faith at this stage in the game is notable. I wish we had more time for this because I think the leper's response here to Jesus Uh, It echoes into our generation still, into my very heart, when basically he says, I know that you can, I don't know if you will, right? I don't know if you will. 
I wish we had time to talk about that. I started a whole second sermon on that, and I have a file, so maybe I need to teach it on another day. Mark tells us, who also um, wrote about this story, that Jesus was moved with compassion, which is a very precious addition to the story. And he said, I am willing. Keep in mind that this touch, just this touch alone, the physical nature of this touch, would by law have rendered Jesus ceremonially defiled. Um, according to Leviticus. In fact, even coming near enough to Jesus just for contact was against Levitical regulations. And so I just love it that Jesus did not stand there. He did not stand there grilling this guy or pressing on his faith or further investigating, you know, his beliefs or objecting at all to his uncleanness. Remember, even his disciples would have been of the understanding that this man had leprosy because of his sin. But we don't see Jesus, like, press on that at all. Rather, he just stretched out his hand and touched him physically and healed him on the spot. This leper didn't have anything to prove to Jesus other than that, other than his simple faith. And so, I want to note a few things this morning, and this is the first one. Jesus, his very first miracle after the Sermon on the Mount so intentional and so strategic tells us something. And it's that his mercy is for the outcast. I honestly do not think this can, this cannot really be overemphasized um, in the scope of this story. And also, it's more familiar than we think it is. I know that in the first century, it seems maybe outrageous to us at this point that leprosy would been, was considered a result of personal failure. Um, but that's closer to home than we're probably willing to admit. You know what? We are still socially conditioned to blame the poor and the outcast for their lot. We are. Even subconsciously, we still attach characteristics to them. We say, or we think, they're lazy, they're dumb, they're irresponsible or manipulative or foolish or less than in some way. In other words, it's kind of like, hey, that bad thing that happened to you, um, that bad place that you find yourself, it's basically your fault. We say it nicer than that, but that is the way we approach. We even see it's it's terrible representation in our politics as we have these terms in the vernacular, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, right? To be truthful, it takes way too much work um, to dig, to understand broken systems, to understand economic disparity. Now, that is work. It's really much easier to just blame. Plus, I'll be honest with you. We, um, We have a vested interest in our own station as deserving, right? Here's the thing. Jesus' outrageous first move off the mountain here cannot be denied. It really can't. So, okay, let me ask you a question. Let's put it in our context. Let's say Jesus was down at the Irwin Center today and he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? All that teaching in our time and in our place. Who would you say, according to this text, 
If he finished that sermon, walked out the doors of the Irwin Center, who do you think he would make a beeline for next? Oh, and we talk in this church. I'm sorry. Well, like when I ask a question, it's for real. Uh, who would he go to? Who's our lepers? The homeless, undoubtedly. Who else? An addict, certainly. Who we would blame. We would blame for his condition. Who else? Abusers. Who else? I do not think he would find his way to the nearest sanctuary. I think he'd find his way to the nearest street corner. And I don't think the Christians would like it. I think we would say, oh, no, you don't understand. Something's wrong with him. Um, She's made a lot of bad choices to get to where she is today. I want to show you, though, that Jesus did something really, really important next that bears a lot of weight in our generation too. Look in verse 4. Because you know this guy just wants to run around and tell everybody, you'll never believe what's happened to me. You'll never believe what just went down. This is what Jesus said in verse 4. See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So in other words, I don't, I don't want you to run around talking about it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go directly to Jerusalem, which was quite a journey. Directly to Jerusalem, present yourselves to one of the priests to be examined, and then I want you to offer what has been ordered by the law of Moses in order to make you ceremonially clean. You guys, by the way, That ritual is so complicated, you would not believe it if I explained it to you. It's actually found in Leviticus 14. I'll just say this. It involves birds, uh, cedar, scarlet yarn, uh, two full body shaves, lambs, earlobes, the big toe of the right foot, a priest. Y'all, it took eight days. It was intense, okay? And so he says, I want you to go straight away into this ritual, and here's why. Jesus' priority here was to have him restored to the communion of the church from which his leprosy had separated him. And I sat there at my desk with that this week and I thought, I was trying to imagine, what if every church in every city was committed to welcoming in and restoring the outcasts of our communities like Jesus prescribed here? We know that this leper was healed and restored physically. But Jesus now sees to it that he was also restored spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and ultimately economically. And don't miss this one little word, because Jesus said that he sent him to the temple as a testimony to them. Then and always. Jesus uses the weak to lead the strong. You know who's missing out when we keep the outcasts outcasted from our space? We are. We're missing out. We are missing out on their gifts. We are missing out on their talents. We are missing out on the profound nature of their stories. We are missing out on their human presence and the gift of redemption right among our midst. It should be a testimony to us. This 
This part of the story tells us two important things about Jesus' kingdom. Number one, that Jesus is compassionate. And number two, that his compassion begins with the outcast. There's no doubt. So I want to go on in the story because this is all, all very intentional and in order. So Jesus leaves the leper. And this is what we see immediately following this encounter. Starting in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, which is about maybe a mile away from where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. A centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Okay, this is like whiplash. So a centurion is a Roman officer. Let's remember that at the time, Israel is under Roman occupation and under Roman control. So here we have a Roman officer. Centurion literally means leads at least a hundred men, which is where the term comes from. This is a big officer, an important one. So he had all the power that the leper lacked, but he's not Jewish. He was definitely an outsider to the faith with a resented position of authority over the Jewish people. So y'all, really, if Jesus' mercy to the leper shocked people, then this one would literally make them lose lose their ever-loving minds. For real. I mean, they were supposed to have religious and at least geographical solidarity against Rome. Right? At least that was clear. That just seemed to be like the bottom the bottom line. But then we see this in verse, set, verse 6 and 7. Or 7 and 8, excuse me. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Luke tells us, who also told the same story, that the centurion actually sent word to Jesus through his messengers, but the story is the same. And I love this because Jesus doesn't say... Um, I'll come see him, right? He doesn't say, I'll come examine him like an ordinary physician would do. Um, He says, I'll come heal him. And let's just notice how this conversation goes. Because at this point, there's not one qualifying statement about the centurion's faith or position or belief system. All he says to him is, my servant is really sick. And Jesus says, I will come heal him. What kind of a savior is this? Seriously. Surely in this case, deserving and undeserving should factor in, at least here. So we can't miss it because it's too important and it's too intentional that Jesus' second miracle after the Sermon on the Mount tells us this. That his mercy is also for the outsider. So it's interesting here because just like Jesus first chose the outcastiest outcast, right? He now chooses the most outside outsider. These are not um, less uncomfortable gray areas. He could have found someone a little bit more gray. These were previously crystal clear. In fact, 
So look here. Let's see what he says, because this is, this is important. This is starting in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, because Jesus says, I'm just going to come and heal him. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So I think we see three important things here. Again, they're not qualifiers because Jesus has already agreed to heal a servant. But that did provoke a strong response from Jesus here in just a minute, so we should heed it. Um, Number one, the centurion acknowledges that Jesus is great. Um, What humility we see in him. Do not even come to my house. It's too great a favor. I am unworthy of it. I contrast that with the way that sometimes in our culture, of much and plenty and haves, how we sometimes approach Jesus with our requests. Me, I know I do it. Entitled, angry, sometimes a little demanding, put out. So I'm I'm moved by his posture here. So he acknowledges that Jesus is great. He acknowledges that Jesus is divine. Because he he says, just say the word and it'll be done. Right? He didn't say, um, Jesus, pray for him to be healed like he might ask of a prophet um, or a teacher. He just says, speak and it will be done like a Messiah. So a lot like the leper, he says to Jesus, I know you're able. Profound faith. But here's the the thing that I want to press into. He acknowledges here that Jesus has authority. And this is something. This is big right now in the story of Jesus' life. So basically what he says to Jesus is like, I'm under the authority of Caesar, the Roman emperor. And I have great authority over a lot of men also. He basically says, I tell them what to do and they do it. Just on my word. I don't have to even be in the room. I can just send word and it will get done. So essentially what he is saying is then, how much more easily could you, who are, who's the Messiah with all power in heaven and earth and all bodily diseases under your command, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, look how Jesus responds to this sort of faith. In verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed that very hour. Jesus just, man, he knew how to thin a crowd. I mean, here he says out loud that he has just now witnessed the greatest faith he has ever seen in Israel. And he ascribes it to a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, a Gentile oppressor. So this is big for you and I, because right here at the beginning of Jesus' work, we start to see his mission concerning the call of the Gentiles. This is the first time this idea has ever been trotted out. Um, So Jesus is suggesting that what was seen in this man now, 
in this moment would be fulfilled in enormous numbers of folks in a little while. Super outrageous. Right? We're so far on this side of the cross that we can lose how profound and outrageous this idea was. Basically, he says, many outsiders from all over, from the east and the west, they're going to believe in me, like Abraham and all the rest of the patriarchs, and they will enjoy the same blessings of grace as them. So, in this moment, as we are reading it, Jesus is changing every parameter around God's people that have ever existed. To me, it's a way bigger miracle than healing of the servant. As outsiders to Jesus' original people and culture, this is our great joy. So here's what happens here. And this is how this applies to us. And Jesus sets a big table. The allusion here that he's sort of referring to is the ancient practice of sitting together at a feast, right? Um, Just under the metaphor of a very plentiful table, uh, which represents, you know, all the blessings, essentially, of the gospel. And so that has been both a practice and an illustration for a long time. We see a lot of talk of feast and table um, in, in scriptures up until this point. But now Jesus says it is not restricted anymore to a particular nation or a set of people, but it is by faith. So I am sitting with the scripture and just ever convinced that the table is bigger and wider than we could ever imagine. Jesus is changing the question here from what it's always been, who is out, to who is in. And to me, this is the arc of the whole gospel. God's people, generally, then and now, um, we want outsiders out. But Jesus wants outsiders in. Or we say that we want them in, but we have a list of qualifiers, right? We want them in in the way that makes us feel comfortable, in the way that is familiar. But I think about this uh, centurion. I mean, how are we supposed to make sense of this guy? I mean, here we have a Roman officer, and he believes in Jesus, clearly. But still, the next day, when they wake up the next day, he is still in a forcible position of authority over Israel. What do we do with this? I mean, what does that look like? Right? His, his place in the community doesn't fit the formula at all. It didn't fit it when he met Jesus, and it's not going to fit it the next day. This is not at all comfortable. So here in our culture, we have a formula too. We have a formula that we like, right? The one that says in and out. What, what would you say in general What do we like the formula in our time, in our culture, to look like? What does the formula say? These are the things we like to have in play to make us feel comfortable with you. Look like us. I'm looking at a very homogenous crowd right now. 
You have to be a believer, and I think you have to be a believer in the way that we are a believer, right? Repentance, and we also, again, we like to see that a certain way. We like to see that have a certain flavor. Lars is heterosexual, clearly. Yes? Did you say don't smell? Well, that's true. With my eyes, I have seen someone escorted out of church because they smelled and they weren't tidy. I think we like people to share our theology, to share our skin color, to share our practices. I think they like our politics. Thank you, Laura. Don't get me started. (laughs) Our health. Our interpretations. But what about when folks fall way outside of those lines? Let me tell you something, church. That is not under our authority. It is under Jesus's. That is not our responsibility. It is not ours to say who is in and who is out and how God handles salvation of planet earth. You know what? I don't think we actually have one clue how Jesus actually makes outsiders insiders. He's been doing it for centuries across cultures, across religions, across countries, across people groups, across ethnicities. For centuries, he has been redeeming humanity. And not just in this little evangelical way that we have come to understand him in America. Right? I read an interview this week with a missionary. From a, he was interviewing this missionary. And he, had, he was working. His whole life's work um, was, was a missionary to rural China. Okay? And so this missionary tells this story about how he found himself in a absolutely obscure Buddhist monastery. I mean, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And he's, he's sitting down face to face with this Buddhist monk. This man had been committed to the monastery as a child. He literally grew up there. Absolutely no contact with the outside world, completely cut off from all technology. That wasn't even a, that wasn't even a thing. Okay. He had lived his entire life there in that place and under that teaching. And this missionary says he sits down with him and starts telling him about Jesus, right? And it's kind of sharing the gospel with this Buddhist monk. And he gets to the end of his explanation about Jesus. And he says that this Buddhist monk looks at him and goes, I know exactly who that is. I know Jesus. I know him. I've had him in my heart my whole life. I just, I didn't know his name. We don't know how God is redeeming people. We don't know the scope of his reach. But I tell you, when he tells us, I came for the outsider, he means it. When he says, I wish that none would perish, he means it. And we don't know how people come under the banner of salvation, even if it looks completely different from ours. It is not ours to judge. This is not our call. We know that Jesus has enough compassion for the outcast. And I'll tell you what, he has enough authority to include the outsider. 
So finally and quickly, this is a short little last section of this, of Jesus' little walk here. Starting in verse 14. It's so precious. When Jesus came into Peter's house, this is just right after the centurion, you guys. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Isn't it kind of fun to know that Peter had a wife? That's the only mention of it ever. My friends know that it's weird, but Peter's my favorite disciple. And so I just, I hang on to this like, oh, your wife must have been long-suffering. Um, <laughs> he was a wild, he was a loose cannon. Okay. Um, simple. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. I'll tell you why I included that. So precious. One, two, three. He does not forsake his people. Israel. So with his third strategic encounter in a row, we see that Jesus' mercy is also for the insider. So he chooses um, the outcastiest outcast, right? And then he goes next to the most outside outsider. And he goes a third time to the most inside insider. This is Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus had 12 bros on earth. This was as inner circle as it could possibly get for Jesus. That's very dear to me. Because then and now, still, he is also for the person who loves and understands the Bible, um, for the person who's been around church his or her whole life, um, for the person who's lived a pretty straight life. This is really, really dear to me to know that he has enough compassion and authority for the outcast and the outsider, but he still has enough tenderness for the insider. You know who Jesus' people are? Everyone. He loves the near. He loves the far. He loves the wacky. And I tell you what, I mean it. In some way, I can literally identify with every single one of those categories in certain contexts. I know that Jesus actually changed the categories, but we still keep them. Let me ask you this. Between outcast, between outsider, between insider... Do you have one of those groups into which you identify most? And why? My Bible study girls know that I'll wait. I have no problem. (laughs) Say that again. He identifies with the outsiders because they take you as you are. Do any of you come in this place today and say, of those three groups, I feel most related to? Anybody else? It's funny because I usually feel most related to the insiders, pastor's daughter, pastor's wife, pre-square. Um, kind of, except interestingly, interestingly now, as I'm older, and find myself sort of in a Christian space of leadership, ironically enough, I'm not Christian enough for a lot of people. 
so now I get to know what it feels like to be an outsider also. How does this apply to us? I know it's hard to say that out loud, but I know that in this room, some of us feel most closely identified with what would be considered insiders in the family of God. I know some of us are going to feel more closely identified with outsiders, like you can't even believe you're here, right? Like your friend tricked you here. Some of us feel like outcasts. Our life, our history, our stories, whatever makes us different, unacceptable. May I first say that our prayer is that ANC feels like a home to you all, to all of us. But I think about these groups that Jesus has so strategically gone toward. And we've got a real social problem here still. Because a lot of times toward outsiders, right? The insiders can often feel defensive, right? Or judgmental. You don't know me. You don't understand. Or you don't value my values, okay? And there's this clear and obvious rift between insiders and outsiders. But toward insiders, outsiders can often be critical. You guys are all, right? You never... You always, you're all mean and judgmental. That's terribly unfair. That's not true either. And sometimes toward the outcasts, insiders and outsiders both feel judgmental, feel better than, feel superior to. And I just think as we wrap it up this morning, what if we took a page from Jesus' book here? And I say this with all the love in my heart, for every person in this room. But listen, if you have a fundamental problem, you may not even say it out loud. It might just be in your mind, in your heart, in your thoughts. But if you have a problem with any one of those groups, insiders, outsiders, outcasts, you need to deal with it. If anything at all is clear from this text, it is certainly not um, that anyone is obviously in or out. There's no obviously in or out anymore but it's that Jesus is for us all. So if we are Christ followers, right, loving like Jesus loved, including who he loved, then we need to set a wider table. So I don't know, maybe it just starts with a simple um, prayer. Depending on where you find your heart this morning, maybe you just say, God, help me love the lepers. Maybe help me love the centurions. Help me love the apostles. So I love Jesus because he preached this amazing sermon and then he goes directly out and lived it. So if any of his radical talking points from the sermon were confusing, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then his next steps certainly made it clear, right? Salvation has come for us all. And none of us, nobody, uh, none of us are better or worse. None of us are more or less worthy, more or less likely, or more or less welcome. So the sooner that we begin to identify with one another as brothers and sisters, the better. Because here's the thing. Truthfully, we are all the same on this side of the Jesus equation. We are. 
There is Jesus, and then there is everyone else. All the rest of us. Same pool. So I believe that we will really see God's kingdom come when we pull up a seat to the table that we've all been invited to by faith. And we break the bread and we share the wine together. And we are able to celebrate that truly we are saved by the grace of Jesus through faith. And not one thing of ourselves. It is truly the gift of God. Will you pray with me?